Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, and welcome to this new episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Today, I am joined by Tyler Winter. His handle on Instagram is Buffalo Catcher. And Tyler is professionally an environmental scientist, and he looks at the chemistry of water uh, in lakes and rivers. And starting as a, as a younger kid, but also now as an adult with his profession, um, he has developed a real passion for what would be termed rough fish. Now, he's based here in Minnesota, where I am. And Minnesota, I believe, is one of six states, and he references it in our conversation, that designate fish as either rough or sport. And this designation has a lot of background and history behind it that he'll go into. But he's really on a mission to not have rough fish designated in in a different way, which can lead to certain unintended consequences, let's say. So as an example, some rough fish, there's an unlimited catch amount. So, well, sport fish have have uh, certain limits that you have to uh, adhere to when you're out catching them. Some rough fish uh, do not have have any limits. And so he thinks there's a problem with that. And uh, he talks about a bill he supported here in Minnesota uh, called the No Junk Fish Bill. And I think he's got a really unique perspective. And I think you'll find this conversation with Tyler fascinating. So without further ado, I give you Tyler Winter. So, Tyler, welcome to the podcast. This is great to be here, and especially on an award-winning <laughs> podcast. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yes, it was just announced, uh, just put out on social media today that uh, on Monday we won first place in the podcast category um, for, I think it was episode 32 with Ryan Bussey. And so, thanks so much. Appreciate that. Um, well, today we're going to talk about fish. And we'll get more specific here on what kind of fish in a moment. But let me start by asking you, do you eat fish? I do eat fish. I actually just got back from uh, eating a bunch of lake trout in the Boundary Waters. Oh, yeah, nice. Oh, my gosh. Spring and fall lake trout fishing in the Boundary Waters. Does it get any better? I don't know. No. Um, If you smoke them over your own campfire while you're trying to catch more, that's pretty great. (laughs) Anytime you can do double duty like that, I I like it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Gunflint side, Ely side, where were you at? We were um, off uh, out of Tofte. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So, uh, how was was the weather when you are up there? Chilly? Oh, it was perfect. It was cold and wet and just exactly how I like my Boundary Waters trip. (laughs) This is actually a special year for us. It was our uh, 25th father-son Boundary Waters trip. Oh, my gosh. 25th annual. That so. is great. And do you usually do spring and, and go after lake trout when you do that? We, uh, Man, when I started out, we actually didn't know how to fish at all. Um, and we were just happy when we caught a hammer handle or something. Yeah. And uh, over the years, we've realized that with spring lake trout fishing, we could uh, sit and camp under a tarp in the rain uh, and poke a fire and catch big fish at the same time. <laughs> and that's really just the best of everything all at once. I'm so. with you, man. I am with you. It's, uh, I, I'd take a, a, a cool rainy day up there than a hot buggy day. Absolutely. And yeah, um, some of our 
best days and biggest fish have just come. So we've got a, we've gotten a couple 30 inch lake trout just off of our campsites over the years. Like wow. just sitting there soaking cut bait. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't get any easier or more, you know, more rewarding than that. So is that what you're doing? You're using salted shiners or like, what do you, what are you taking? Freeze. Uh, I like to just freeze some white suckers in advance. Um, and then, uh, even three, four days in, yeah, uh, they get a little ripe. The yeah. lake trout do not care. Yeah, yeah. They, they maybe even makes it better for them. Yeah, bottom feeders. How d- how deep were they when you were fishing them? This, this year, year they were actually uh, this particular lake. They actually a lot of them ended up suspended. Um, they were eating uh, midge midges that were hatching. Hmm. So it was a weird lake, a weird year. Uh, but we still we got most. Did of them take pro- take a little while to dial them in, or uh, yeah, I had to figure out that we needed to drag uh, shallow crankbaits across the middle of the lake okay. like we didn't know what we were doing yeah and then the <laughs> lake trout were there <laughs> uh, they were looking up and they wanted to eat something shiny so were you able to catch them some right from the campsite then yeah we got a few bites not as not wasn't a great bait year but you know we made made and we got at least one off the campsite uh so kept the hope alive but that's a rare thing for me is is catching a fish right from the campsite in the boundary waters and it, if you can find that if you get the right spot that's that's sort of ideal water temp yeah i uh i carry a pocket thermometer yeah and uh i have definitely checked the water temperature in front of our campsite and then said no we're not camping here uh-huh. That side of the lake will be warmer. Aha! Uh-huh. There you go. I never even thought about that in terms of wind, et cetera, and th- and picking campsite based on water temp. That is a that's a hot tip. A oh new yeah, hot tip I, there. I, I scout like out. I scout my campsites for for depth contours and uh, bays versus lake, you know, and so on and so forth, and try to pick the one that will have fish. Yeah. So I can catch fish from when I wake up till when I go to bed, and hopefully, you know, like maybe even pick up an eel pout right you know after dark okay yeah so what is your um so okay so lake trout smoke lake trout over the campfire in the boundary waters mm-hmm. when your favorite fish to eat how about your favorite fish to catch oh man probably my favorite fish to actually catch and to fish for is probably a river red horse mm. i have to say that's the first time i've had somebody tell me that when i asked that question you know and um I hate to spread it around because, you know, my River Red Horse spots are pretty empty right now. Right. <laughs> right. So tell me how you're fishing those and when you're fishing them, or don't tell me if you want to keep it secret. Well, I can tell you how. So okay. the uh, Red Horse uh, usually do a long migration in the spring and head up river. And so if you can find them right away in the spring, you usually can find a lot of them where they're really concentrated. But springtime water's high and muddy and you can't wade and it's really hard to sight fish come summertime if you can find them when the water's low and clear i really like to just wet wade on a hot day with a couple dozen crawlers and maybe some uh, green lip mussels if uh if i think i'm going to be getting into really big red horse and just wade and sight fish them Mm, and fun. yeah and they they get big the river red horse and greater red horse can get to be 30 inches long wow. yeah, I mean, the, how's their fight I, I, it's good yeah i mean they're big fish and they swim and you're fishing for them in pretty good current and so i i've gone up to like 15 pound tests now most of the time um 
because if you have any nick in your line from the rocks or anything, yeah, you just there's no room for error done, in yeah. that current. So yeah, definitely have had pl- uh, times chasing fish down the river and whatnot. And um, but it's just super funny. You see a fish like big gold fish like holding in the a run or something like that, and just make out a red tail or something, and you're you know chuck a bait out and get it to bounce down in front of them. And then you see like movement, you know, wait, it's on and you lift and it's a bass. And because <laughs> every big red horse has a, at least one, if not two bass that, that follow it around. Really? Absolutely. If you ever find a good, clear, you know, water river, like maybe with a pedestrian bridge or something like that, yeah. you can watch this happen. And the bass will really? follow bigger fish. We call it the honor guard. Okay. And like they're looking for those crayfish and things like that that the sucker might scare out. But they're more aggressive than the sucker. And so right. especially if you're fishing worms, they will jump on that worm and you gotta like catch one or two bass before you can get at the big red horse. Yeah. Infuriating. <laughs> Are you uh, using spinning gear usually? What are you doing? I Yeah, I usually use uh, spinning gear, uh, seven and a half foot, medium light or medium rod. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've spooled up with the braid uh, so I can cut you that. You do use braid, okay. Got to cut that. You do a leader on the end or not? Like um, a mono or something? Yeah, I'm using like a slip sinker rig. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, then like a fluoro leader. Yeah. Um, but the the braid really helps cut the current. That, okay. that braid, that four pound diameter, you yeah. need less weight yeah. to get down. Yeah. And and better presentation. How heavy of a of a sinker are you using to get down? Depending on the depth. Could be an ounce. Yeah. Sometimes oh, okay. more. I mean the current one, in this place yeah. is is ripping. Okay. Like, gotcha. You gotta get it down. Yeah, because these fish really need like the clean cobble gravel substrates where you where you are found in those high current areas. Right. And so, yeah, but I love the sight fishing. And then it's like, man, you, you know fish there and you get the bass out of the way. And then like sometimes you just get snubbed and you're just like, <laughs> I will come back for you, you know. But like the fact that you don't catch everyone yeah. is like what makes it fun for me. And then sometimes you, you know, you're just like, ah, well, maybe there's one in that hole. Yeah. And you set the hook and just like you now you're like, I should not be fishing a medium light. And you're chasing it. And, you know. <laughs> And yeah, you get, uh, uh bef- when I pre-fished before, uh, I filmed uh, B-side fishing last summer, I got like eight and at least two of them were 26 and I had like a personal best 28 incher, wow. which I could not fit in the trout net I was carrying. It would not bend <laughs> and fold into the, the trout net. That's awesome. Yeah. I don't know which is more sort of frustrating or, um, unfun you know sitting there on a lake bobber fishing and you don't have a clue if there's anything down there or sight fishing on a river and you can't get the fish to even look at what you're throwing right in front of them oh i i love the second one yeah when when i getting snubbed that challenge yeah yeah getting snubbed by fish is uh, is great that's you know and you just go home and be like what is it gonna be like what do i have to do what do i have to do yeah i gotta figure this out right like, why wouldn't they bite yeah I mean, but that's why like that's why i love fishing for big mouth buffalo too is it took me years it took me years of like trying to get a big mouth buffalo and i would find one and i would try to like downsize a bait and drift it to it and it would bounce off its face and i couldn't figure out you know i wasn't even 
They wouldn't even do me the honor of like getting out of the way, <laughs> acknowledging my presence. Like they weren't even scared. Um, uh, which is why when uh, I filmed a DOS boat with our mutual friend Miles, and he actually got two takes on the fly rod pretty quickly. Yeah, and it straightened his hook out um, because he had you know tied a, a pretty small fly and it just straightened his hook out. Um, I was really impressed that he got two takes in fairly short order. Right? I mean, he's a talented angler. He's a very good angler. Like, I was like, because I was like, I don't know if you're going to be able to do it. Like, <laughs> but yeah, they big enough fish that just straightened his trout hook right out. Right, right. So, well, let's talk, let, let me back up for a second and, um, and, and ask you, um, to, to explain to everybody listening, uh, what your day job is? What do you What do you do? My day job is I'm a, an environmental science scientist, so I do water quality monitoring, um, and I work on the uh, Twin Cities region's large rivers, um, which is great. Uh, so I'm out on the Minnesota, Saint Croix, Mississippi, Crow, and Rum rivers, doing water chemistry, uh, temperature, dissolved oxygen, basic sort of uh, water quality monitoring work. Um, which is really helpful because then after work I can get off and I know where I want to go fishing. Um, so which came first, your, your love of fishing or your vocation? Oh, my love of fishing, uh, basically as early as I could remember, I wanted to catch fish and, uh, which my family, um, aren't, aren't anglers, um, are not, are not. Where'd you, where'd you grow up? I grew up mainly in southern Minnesota. Okay. Um, with family all over Minnesota, but my dad really still doesn't know how to fish, um, which I thank him for periodically. Yeah. Because I, I came at fishing with no preconceived notions. I just. Good or bad. No, good or bad. <laughs> so, like, I just wanted to catch fish and big fish. Um, and so, yeah, then I've, I was a kid. I was fishing in a drainage ditch by my grandma's house, and uh, I caught a moon eye completely completely out of the blue and I've i was never a, caught a moon eye yeah i was a know-it-all kid yeah and then suddenly i'm holding this fish that i didn't know right and that um and then my uncles who still know everything they didn't know what it was either nobody knew what it was and like <laughs> that like uh that really tipped me off to this idea that there are these other mysteries out there right that i didn't know everything and that there was which then led on to, you know, an interest in, in water and rivers and Minnesota's lakes and uh, all of Minnesota's esoteric wildlife, but mainly uh, mainly the non-game fish. So you went, uh, I believe I recall seeing somewhere, you went to University of Minnesota Duluth, right? Yep. And got a degree in? Biology, chemistry, and limnology. Okay. Like, I took every... Uh, ecology and lake and stream and water and bug class that I could get at the University of Minnesota Duluth, which was great. So, yeah. And I took ecology course, and I remember looking at a, a northern hog sucker and thinking, like, these fish are so cool. Like, the the way their head is shaped, they're a little bit like an F1 race car where they, like, have downforce. And I was like, ha, it's a shame, like, I'll never, like, see these mm -hmm. because like obviously you can't catch them yeah and then i met the founder of roughfish.com after i graduated uh cory gavin and he was like well yeah we catch those <laughs> i was like what do you mean you just <laughs> and how did how did he catch those um the trick is to get your like worm on the bottom 
and like don't and like drag it in front of their nose. Okay. Don't try to drift it to them. Okay, drag it, swing it almost rather that rather than a dead than a dead drift. Yeah, those fish, I swear, have a kind of an understanding of <clears throat> physics that if like a worm doesn't fall right, hmm. um, they'll know that it's yeah. like yeah. not actually food. Mm-hmm. And even if you present it to them again, they'll ignore it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the simplest thing to do is use like a snagless sinker. Spot one, cast mm-hmm. it upstream, and just literally drag your sinker okay. on the bottom. Gotcha. So that it doesn't drift or like do anything weird. Gotcha. And then okay. like let him let him go for it. But so people are probably thinking, oh, this guy talks about a lot of different weird kind of fish. This is not not we, your typical conversation. We jumped in the deep end. <laughs> we we kind of did. So let's uh, continue to back up the bus here a little bit, and um, um, so. We know your day job. You're out in the water. You're checking the biology, the health of the waters. Presumably, you're looking at what kinds of infiltration is happening. Are the waters healthy? Do they have the right kinds of wildlife around them in them? Is that I'm, correct? I'm mainly focused on the chemistry of uh, the water. Um, so a lot of it's sediment, nutrients, mm-hmm. chlorides, that kind of thing. And we do a lot of just like routine monitoring. So I'm actually contributing to a database that goes back to 1976. Mm-hmm. So like from the inception of like the Clean Water Act and like we have this record of, of water quality data for like these large rivers in the metropolitan area, um, which is which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, the biology side of things really is more my own personal passion. Gotcha. Okay. But they, they mesh together um, really well. So I'm out working in the same places that I that I love to take my family fishing and recreate. So, so my guess is, tell me if I'm wrong, out of those r- big rivers you talked about in the metro area, St. Croix, Mississippi, Rum, Minnesota. Oh, Minnesota. Minnesota probably gives you the most things to study would be my guess. Is that there's accurate? A, there's a lot going on in the Minnesota River. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, um, there's a lot of fish in the Minnesota River. Right. I know. My, my poundage, you know, it's a really great fishing spot. You just need to get over the fact that the water is brown. Yeah, yeah. Um, which maybe just explain a little bit of the of the aspect of, of, of the Minnesota River and maybe just get in a little bit of, not too deep, but just to sort of explain why that river is different. Yes, yeah, so the Minnesota River flows over um, softer sediments, um, more erodible soils. Um, and so it's really susceptible to changes in hydrology. Mm-hmm. And so as uh, we've drained wetlands and altered the landscape in southern Minnesota, where the Minnesota, we've increased the flows of the Minnesota River. And that is just scouring the banks and the bottom of the river, and it's changing the shape of it. And that is, that dirt then is ending up uh, washing all the way down to Lake Pepin, where it's... And given that that river flows through a lot of agricultural area, is there more sediment? Is there more um, nutrient in that water column than those than the other rivers, just because of the nature of where it flows? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. So, um, when it comes to the fish in the waters, you have the reason our friend Miles said. You had to connect us. You have this passion for fishing, but a specific type of fish, which maybe you don't even um, like the definition of these fish would be my guess. You and I haven't talked about this before, and that would be the 
rough fish. Is that accurate? Yes. And so, yeah, that is such a tricky, it's such a tricky phrase because on one hand, it's, um, it's like a category of fish really that's big enough to be, uh, it's a category of fish that's big enough to be sought by anglers. Mm-hmm. You know, they all grow, you know, like the smallest ones grow like a couple pounds, right? Okay. Um, but they're not typically can called game fish, mm-hmm. you know? And so like this rough fish category, it conveniently excludes other native fish like darters, mm-hmm. you know, or mm-hmm. shiners that you're probably aren't going to interest an angler. Mm-hmm. And then it, it also then like separates out like your bass and your walleyes and your pike and your game fish. And so that's basically what, you know, it's a weird category, but it's like, I've come to realize really that rough fish has a pretty negative connotation for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's really the only thing these fish have in common um, because there's a whole bunch of different groups of fish that have all been lumped together that aren't actually even related to each other. (laughs) You know, so it's It's a catch all, right? It's a catch all, right? So like gar aren't closely related to bowfin, bowfin aren't closely related to moon eyes, Um, buffalo aren't closely related to carp. Um, and of all of them, you know, in the state definition, or like in definition, it's uh, carp are the only invasive species. The other problem or the other thing about the roughfish term is it is actually in state statute. Um, so as much as I would like to get away from mm-hmm. the term roughfish, it is also in state statute. And so sometimes you just have to say, you know, these rough fish are treated differently because of state statute. Mm-hmm. Um that's, you know, until that changes, we're probably going to have to keep using the, that term at least some, some of the time. So for the, for the casual person listening to this going, okay, you lost me, rough fishing, game fish, et cetera, non-game versus game. Maybe that's where we start. Is, is, that, is that a fair, fair oh, yeah. similarity of terminology? So we have in the state of Minnesota, we're going to talk about because every state uh, regulates its its game and fish in their in their own way, and so including rough or non game versus game fish, right? Yeah. So, in a, a couple of different states have slightly different terms. Minnesota is actually only one of six that um, actually uses the uh, rough fish language, um, but every state except Hawaii has some sort of category of freshwater fish that is not sport fish. So, but say that again, though, Minnesota is one of six states that use the term, rough the fish. designation of rough fish. Right. The others use uh, game and non-game or what are they? Non-game okay. or other or, you know, underutilized gotcha. or something like that. Um, but rough fish is uh, still probably the most widely used colloquial, you know, common term for them. Um, and so like there was a, a paper written, but they were talking about like getting rid of the rough fish paradigm because, you know, every state except Hawaii has this distinction, mm-hmm. which then leads to native fish being treated differently simply because of the label. So we have native fish that were originally here in, in the, most recent time as long as we can remember they weren't introduced right so that's your main category we then have invasives that come in we're going to set those aside Mm -hmm. but within the native category we have game and non-game or game and rough here in minnesota yep 
The basis of that designation and it being in statute, what are the origins of that? Was it pure? Have you researched it back going to the origins of it? So like uh, Minnesota statehood, I forget, 1858, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Where does that come in and why? Do we know why? Yeah. So the very first fish commissioner's report is a really uh, humorous read. You can look it up online from the uh, history, uh, um, de- not the history department, the Minnesota History Historical uh, Society. Historical Society, and they they've published it. And like, it's great to read. Like the um, the worst fish in the whole state is pickerel, and their plan was to get rid of pickerel except for one lake for the few pickerel fanatics they were just going to be okay. like we'll just save them like one lake is all we can really um sturgeon were known as were called egg devouring um <laughs> we got to get rid of the egg devouring sturgeon um <sighs> and you know like uh, i think while i got like a passing mention and really like the the primo fish for minnesota was going to be the lake whitefish that was really... Which is one of my favorite fish I of mean, the state. And super tasty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> fun to fish, fun to spear, fun to eat. And so they, they tried stocking lake whitefish all over. Yeah. And oh. they had no idea of like the biology right. of these fish, so they couldn't figure out why they didn't survive in Lake Minnetonka. Right, right. They're like... Um, Cold water fish? Yep. Deep, deep water? They did stock walleyes in Lake Minnetonka. Those did take off. They took off, right. Um, but yep, they... But that's... That is funny. That I, I I'm gonna I've got to find that link and put a link to it in the in the show notes because that's that's fascinating in terms of like you say, just the the, the naivete or and and just sort of the assumptions built into so many things that are that happen at any time, right? And right. that's what we're talking about here. So, and so did that rough in that very first fishing report or that statute statement, what have you? Um, did that include the term rough fish? I think they just had a passing reference to hating everything else. Um, <laughs> Um, that wasn't a lake whitefish. Okay. <laughs> oh, um, the and then it wasn't. I believe in 1909 that the state statutes first mentioned rough fish, and I and I think that the first they didn't even have a like a list. They were just like sure, uh, you know, like that's assumed. Like you know what those are, and then like then they started having uh, a, an actual list uh, just a few years later, and it included things like yellow perch, turtles. You know, so on and so forth. You I mean you can right off the bat, you can see that uh, a list of rough fish that includes turtles, yeah, isn't real fish. biologically sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and that's and I mean, and that's the thing is to it still today. I mean, we have now. We'll we'll step back for a moment into the native versus non-native. Um, Minnesota walleye, the the state fish. We have a huge tourism economy built around it we stock them we raise them stock them and is is arguably considered the most sought after fish in the state um and you just look at what happened you know the the controversy around malax lake and 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 Mm -hmm. and the value of that fish to that lake you had a few thousand miles west of here and it's an invasive and you could take as many as you want i think in a lot of states right yep I mean, and actually, if you want to, like, get into the nitty-gritty, like, a lot of game fish were moved around. Sure. You know, well, so bucket biology or... Just intentional. <laughs> or official. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. like, Lake Minnetonka apparently didn't have walleyes until they were stocked there. Okay. Oh, it didn't? Right. Really? Okay. You know, and I'm not going to, like, harp on walleyes for, like, 
getting moved above Minnehaha Falls, right, you know, right. right. Um, so like at a state level though, you know, so like while well, I Minnesota state, but I think the reason I, I like to point this out is because um, I'm frequently asked if rough fish are invasive. Yeah. And the, the thing is actually, is that because rough fish aren't, haven't been particularly popular, they actually haven't been stocked places. Yeah. Like, so they're actually less likely to be invasive than game fish. Right. Say, can you say that again? So rough fish yeah. are less likely to be an invasive species than oh, a game fish. Right? Gotcha. Gotcha. Because yeah. like nobody, right. no bucket biologist is moving bowfin around. Right, right, right. Exactly. You know, but, but like, like how they, would you, cla- I mean, but I mean, you've just got a highly invasive nature of like, like silver carp, Smallmouth right? bass. Smallmouth bass. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> okay. Um, but like silver carp, I mean, in the rivers, everybody, and that's where I think, you know, when people think of rough fish, the, the cat, the the average person they think of of silver carp um they think of just carp in general in shallow in shallow water lakes right where the disturbance they cause now that and and so those are invasives they are rough fish though right Right. so they're on the rough list but yes they are invasive the part of what um i think people what happens is um when you have an intact healthy ecosystem that's full, right? Like you, they should be resistant to invasion. You know, like that's what theory states. Sure. And what I think we lose sight of is that a lot of the problems, actually it's water quality first. Mm, yeah. And like that then degrades the environment and creates a disturbed environment where the, you don't have like the predators that were there or you, you know, so like common carp, you know, they've been a problem because they are well adapted to finding lakes that had a winter kill mm. and then they have no predators for their young. Gotcha. So when a lake becomes polluted mm. and has winter kills, yeah. you've just created carp habitat. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, right. And so like by removing all the fish that would have competed with them. So your, um, I want to talk, and the crux of this conversation, as I sort of approached it, was, um, you know, reading a lot of things that you that you're doing out there in the news is your, I, I believe your your mission is really to delist the rough fish, right, and and make it make it have it more of an equitable uh, um, regulation, like like game fish, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's. Uh, there's really no reason to ever have unlimited harvest of a native fish. So let me ask you. Let me ask you this. Relative to that, here here is one of the things I was thinking about as as I was getting ready for this conversation is, um, are you are you looking at so given that these rough fish have fairly unre- unregulated um, s- status and mm-hmm. so people can go kill as many as they want if they wanted to. Yep. Do we have a problem today in 2022 with over harvest of them, or are you looking at the potential for over harvest and negative consequences of that in the future? I would answer that in three different ways. That's a lot of ways. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm really sorry. (laughs) That's right. But we're talking, I think it's 27 species of fish. Okay. Right. So it's hard to have a blanket answer. Right, Right. 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 So, there are some of uh, these species that are probably secure and, um, you know, aren't going to be targeted by people. And, you know, some maybe some of them it's fine, right? 
there are also eight species that are already listed as threatened in other Midwestern states. Mm. Okay. Right? So uh, long-nosed suckers are listed as threatened in South Dakota and Illinois. You know, they're susceptible to a warming climate. Right. You know, um, their range has been reduced actually by like lake reclamation projects where they've poisoned lakes that had long-nosed suckers to stock trout. Hmm. So like... We know their range is contracted, contracted, mm-hmm. like they could face, you know, declines in the future, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's there's others where it's just like, it's just unknown, you know, where it's like there is definitely potential for harvest, like big mouth buffalo. Right. There's potential for, for excessive harvest, but the data isn't there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the monitoring hasn't been done. We don't, there aren't, you know, necessarily good creel harvest or creel data or like we don't necessarily know you know and so like some research has has hinted at like in other places um jamestown reservoir there was a study they they said they were declining Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, under unlimited harvest Mm -hmm. um and so um yeah they're kind of three different you know no yeah absolutely so you um were you involved, I saw, in one of the stories, uh, Minnesota, uh, in the uh, House of Representatives? Mm, um, I, I did testify. Testified for... uh, on that. Was that recently? or Yeah, yeah. that was, because, um, yeah, it was this session. Okay. So, um, Becker Finn introduced a bill, correct? Yep. The, she called it the No Junk Fish Bill. Yeah, the No Junk Fish Bill. Okay, gotcha. And that was to... And has has DNR weighed in on it at all and said, Brad Parsons? You can you yeah. can watch it online. He was on the record; they recorded it. He said he hated the term he "rough hates fish." The term "rough fish," exactly. I think the question there's all the practical implications, right? Which is okay. Now, if we double, I don't know if it's double. But let's say we double the number of fish that we're going to manage to that we're going to have to study and understand, et cetera. That's a that's a lot of work, obviously. You know, I think. Um, as I've gotten into the literature on, uh, regulating regu- uh, recreational harvest, it is apparent that that is more of an, uh, art than a science. Mm-hmm. And it's because the, Absolutely. the, <laughs> the, the effort is not limited. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, we can go back to the, you know, the traditions and like, you know, the North American wildlife model and such that, um, if the fishing is good, you can go more often. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you'll eat more fish, even though the daily limit is the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've had most of our regulations, you know, we have the 2022 regulations here on the, on the table. Most of these regulations haven't really changed since the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so appreciably, I mean, the, 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 the limits change, et cetera, the lakes, et cetera. I and think walleyes has had a six limit for mm. I think since the fifties, mm-hmm. they did add the one over 20 mm-hmm. inches. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like it's an iterative process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that if the, if you changed from unlimited to something, mm-hmm. um, even if you, you're still lumping uh, fish or grouping fish by their families or groups or something like that, you're going to change that perception yeah. from that these, because the, common perception i keep running into is that these fish are actually harmful um sure which is not true Mm -hmm. um you know the dnr used to do fish removals and do 
like experimental like sucker removals mm-hmm. and things and they stopped because it didn't work mm. but it, wouldn't they say though like they're still going out wouldn't they say i mean and again it's a non-native common carp they're still killing off shallow lake areas trying to get the carp out right because of the impact on wild rice beds and other and other plants yeah. that are conducive to to waterfall habitat correct well, and so like common carp invasive Unlimited harvest. Yeah, you know. So that's a separate. That's a separate issue from yeah. what we're talking out no, here. No, yeah, here. yeah. I'm a really. It's the native fish that you know belong here, and hopefully, you know, they should give us ecosystem resilience. They support the food web. I was up in the Boundary Waters, and uh, there was a stream, just a tiny little stream between two lakes, and it was full of suckers. Hmm. And I knew it was full of suckers before I got there because there were eagles all over it. Ah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like when by the time we came back out after four days, there were sucker heads <laughs> scattered around. Right. Um, it's like these. You know, if you like eagles, yeah. Who doesn't? Yeah. You know, if you like whatever, the, these fish play a part in the native ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like even if you don't want to catch suckers, at the very least, you know know that if you want to go kill them Mm -hmm. you're taking food away from eagles Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. un-american yeah well i i like the aspect of of again whether it was something i read or or what you just said a few minutes ago i think the aspect of if we were to change the designation and 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 get rid of uh as jamie says the junk fish uh terminology which years ago i had a show i was pitching around it was called uh it was called junk fish and we were going to go around the country and fish for the the uh unmentionable fish that everybody hated and cook it up and, and, and serve it to people and have, have local people go, oh, that is great. Yeah. I just had a story the other day, or not a story. I was just talking to a guy in Alaska the other day. And um, we were talking about... Um, we were talking about salmon fishing, and he was talking about how there's a river near this camp that he manages down in the Kenai, and it's got a really big run of dog salmon. Oh, yeah. And he said he had some people that out fishing it, and he was just, he said it was some of the best fishing they'd ever had. She went and he caught it, and he, and he cooked it up, and I forget how he cooked it. He might have smoked it, but I'm not sure. And... They have some friends who are native Alaskans who've been there forever, many generations, and she's eating it. And she goes, she goes, this is wonderful salmon. <laughs> and she goes, where did you get it? And he goes, you don't even want to know. And yeah. she goes, these aren't. And she's like, is this, is this sockeye? No, it's not. <laughs> and she's like, yeah. Are they are they pinks? No, no, no. <laughs> she's like, these are not dog salmon. <laughs> it's like, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> Miles once told a story on the the podcast. Um, Miles Noltair, our mutual friend, and he uh, he said that when they filmed an episode of Das Boat up on Red Lake, that they caught uh, sheep's head, walleye, and crappies, and they did a blind taste test, <laughs> and sheep's head won by a mile. <laughs> that is so funny. Which makes perfect sense because their closest relatives are redfish from the yeah. Gulf, which yeah. everyone loves to eat. You know, and and that's the thing is we we have we have so many preconceived ideas of of the type of fish, but also even the preparation. Mm-hmm. So, like as an example, we were just, we were just talking about Lake Whitefish, um, and 
And so often people are always talking about smoking them. When I grew up, my dad would, would um, broil them and actually do some different different techniques. But I uh, I just took some people out in January and we went out spearing for, for whitefish. And after I said, well, let's have a short lunch. I'm like, I don't usually fry these up. We did a few years ago, so actually, bad. when Miles was here. And I fried up these small whitefish. And I'm like... You know, it is one of the best eating fish, including fried like that, just because it's such a unique flavor. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's why I always say, to be honest, like walleye, it's the most boring eating fish around. It's it's doesn't it it really is. I mean, it doesn't have a great flavor. And whitefish also has like a a meaty texture. Exactly, it's like. Oh, you should see the pictures. I'll oh, show you the pictures still, yeah. after just even flaking it open and just, you know, it's got the oils. It's just, it's, you know, it's a, it's a it's great, firm. It's, it's a great fish. It is. And yeah. And like, uh, they were, uh, I think they were on the rough list for years too. Like, right. You right. know, and it's yeah. like, well, why is that? You know? And I think part of it too is like, um, they don't bite lures very well. Right. You know? So like, well, then if they can't sell you chatterbaits and rapalas, then yeah, yeah, yeah. like... <laughs> And they go deep most of the summer, so the height of the tourist season, they're they're hard to to get to versus mm-hmm. you know during their spring yeah. fall and. But it's the uh, that doesn't mean that you know uh, people should uh, take more than they can eat. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the actually, I was going to say though, talk about the the food quality. There is also something too where it has become totally normal. Uh, maybe not on modern carnivore. But um, although I did listen to your steelhead episode and didn't, you guys didn't talk about steelhead recipes once. <laughs> um, but like, it's totally normal for people to go out and drive, you know, two hours or more to go fish for trout or, or steelhead or, you know, make a trip to, you know, go bass fishing. Yeah. And I live a, a mile from a, a creek in yeah. the North Metro. And I, and I go down there and uh, tell people I'm fishing for red horse and they say, why? <laughs> and I'm like, why did you, why did you drive two hours to go exactly. catch trout? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, cause they're here, you know, <laughs> because they're bigger than trout. So we have in, I believe I've, I've read, you know, we, we have sort of this predisposition for salmonids and what do you call like bass uh, persiforms? Centricards? Centricids. Centricids. Okay. So we have this bias in modern sport fishing towards these two types of fish. Mm-hmm. And then we have all these others, right? Mm-hmm. And and the piece of it that I do like of what you said, again, is is the aspect of it creates more opportunities so that, you know, eventually over time, we get to the point of where somebody doesn't say to you why, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Where well, it's like, whatever's in your water, you know, and, but now let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, about the aspect maybe of, well, I was going to say uh, the opportunities thing. I think we've hardly touched on that. Yeah. The, um, people stop fishing cause they don't catch fish. Right. And, uh, I don't think anyone thinks that there's the walleye fishing or the bass fishing, you know, is, more of the pipe is too good. Right. right? Yeah. And people have, you know, studied this. They call it the halo of depletion. You know, um, it's really hard to maintain quality fisheries, especially near a population center because of the open access nature of fisheries. Because, um, they, you know, and people feel like they need more and more technology, more and more equipment to go out and get a few fish. And people are working harder and harder. And I can go out to the Mississippi by my house and there's no one around and a couple worms and can bring some friends. And next thing you know, 
we're catching 16 to 20 inch shorthead red horse. <laughs> and I've never had anyone complain. Right. You know? Right. And they're like, either like, this is great. And I'm like, this is every day. You know, it's, it's every day because, you know, um, we only keep as many as we want to turn into soccer balls, you know, like yeah. it's a lot of fun to, to catch, a, catch them and, uh, they make a, a great fish patty and then we let most of them go so we can do it again tomorrow. Right. Um, and it's great. And then sometimes you tie into a silver red horse, it's even bigger, mm-hmm. you know, and there's no one around, you know? Right, right. It's which like, is, which is an integral part of fishing as opposed to combat fishing on the Kenai in Alaska, right? right where you're... And I'm some... a mile from my house. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's like, I wouldn't mind seeing a few other people out there who are also appreciating the resource who then, you know, would have a stake in the river and a stake in the fishery. Right. You know, we could have a few more people out there. As I like to say, it's like, yeah, go fish for, you know, red horse are, uh, are honestly one of the easier ones. Buffalo are pretty tough to catch, but like, yeah, go fish for red horse, catch a shorthead red horse turn it into a fish patty mm-hmm. catch a river red horse and go wow that's a really rare cool long-lived fish and let it go yeah yeah i want to ask you about yeah let's talk about age here in a minute but um do you think um this this game versus non-game designation also over time uh was driven by um, I, to me, the factors would be, you know, what's the, from a sport fish standpoint, what's the most fun to go after? Mm-hmm. What's the most accessible? Uh, what puts up the best fight? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what's the most, has the best palatability on the table? There's also a cultural aspect to it too. Um, that is early as like the, actually when they brought carp to the United States, when the fish commissioner started stocking carp, it wasn't very long afterwards that they noted in in the fish commission reports that the uh, foreign born citizens really appreciated carp, <laughs> found great gustatory enjoyment from them. And you Did can they break, the the carp came from England originally, didn't they? Do you our know? carp came from Germany. They came from Germany. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the and there came to be a, a cultural association, and you yeah. can find uh, you can find the writings in the 1950s where there was, they definitely projected their ideas of class mm, yeah. onto the fish. And right. it almost goes just by the water column where it's like, s- trout feed at the top, and they're the best. <laughs> and bass feed in the middle, and they're blue collar. Right. And fish that feed on the bottom, like catfish, are, are you know, poor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and... And if if it's got if it's lower than a catfish, right. like a sucker, right. that's just on sub sub yeah. doesn't yeah. even hit the. But that seemed to you know happen, and there was at this time water pollution was terrible before the Clean Water Act, right? And so people with means went, you know, to the Adirondacks. They went upstate. They went up north, and they fished for trout. And people who had no means had to stay here and fish in polluted water for whatever they could. Right. Probably because they were, you know, wanted to eat something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that sort of connection is still something that is, we're, we're getting over. Sure. It's interesting. It's interesting you bring up that uh, class society and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> origin of people, et cetera. It's, it, which makes sense. You know, it, I, when I was a kid, um, I still remember uh, conversation with my best friend Corey, and I grew up 
fishing for yellow bullhead. Mm-hmm. We it was one of the one of the best times of the summer, of going out at night, flashlight, pole, sinker rig, mm-hmm. and a big gaba crawler, and you'd throw it off the end of the dock, and we and we just sit there and wait for those wait for those bullheads to come, and I remember. People just being like, including Carl, like, why in the world would you fish those? Why would you go after them? Because they're great to eat. And then it's the shock of what? You eat them? You eat them? Yeah. Why would you fish them? And you eat them? And I'd say, yeah, it's one of, it's one of the best eating fish around. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, it is tough to clean yeah. com- as, as compared to, like, let's say, a mess of sunfish. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that skin is hard to get through. Uh, but it's wonderful eating yeah. fish, right? No, honestly, I... Uh, I definitely eat, I probably eat a few extra uh, rough fish so that when people say to me, well, you can't eat those. And I say, well, I do. <laughs> right, right. So let's talk about um, age of the fish and, 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 and those that are long lived. Because like your friend who's done a lot of the research on Alec, buffalo, yep, right? Alec Lackman. Yep. Yeah. Um, I saw him do a presentation years ago. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I believe I've read in the past, like 112 years old. Is that the oldest? That's the oldest we've found. Okay. But right. There's, there? Yeah. There's other research they, they did and found that uh, fish that old uh, really showed no signs of aging. Wow. And so we, we actually don't know what the upper limit is. That's just crazy. They show no signs of aging. It's almost like the sequoias, you know, which is just like they're almost immortal, if you will, of they're just aging capacity. This maybe is uh, in the weeds, but there's uh, telomeres are uh, on the chromosomes and they get shorter when uh, as most animals age. And they looked at the telomeres on these buffalo and they were uh, not getting shorter. They were like the same length and they're like, wait a minute, these fish like don't seem to age. Long lived species um, are definitely adapted to like episodic recruitment, they say, where it's like they need like um, like the perfect conditions, high flow and warm water or whatever it is. And maybe that happens every once in a while and they have a good year class. And then like these fish can then live a long time till those conditions come around again. Mm. Um, And so like, you know, now we've come along though and like built dams yeah, and things like that. So in some places they just aren't reproducing anymore. Hmm. Um, but we don't have that good high quality age data right? Um, from everywhere else to know how widespread that problem is. The, and the, the thing is too, Alec was like the first person to really be curious enough about these fish to like do the aging really carefully and when he found these fish to be 90, 100, 112 years old, the results were so surprising that he got a lab to do radiocarbon dating on their ear bones. And nuclear testing creates a signature for carbon-14. And so they were able to show that th- these fish were 60 years old during the phase of nuclear testing. Oh. Therefore, like, proving... That they were really, that it wasn't like miscounting or something, Hmm. independently verifying the method. Interesting. And, you know, like up until he'd done that, because they grow to like a large size and then they would stay there for a Mm -hmm. long time, because of the way fish grow, they're uh, usually you can use scales. Scales only work for fish that like 
are relatively young. When you have a fish that is the same length for 40 years, its scales aren't getting bigger. Right. So you're right. not adding new rings. Right. Gotcha. And so they did the ages and like, oh, these fish are 30 years old or whatever, you know, because the, they weren't looking at a structure that actually grew continuously through the fish's life. Yeah. And so just, you know, and a lot of this research that were done on these non-game fish dates back to like the 60s or something. And you want to like look up something and you find like the most recent paper from the 70s or whatever. And you're like, were they... <laughs> We haven't looked back at this, you wow. know, you know, it's a, a lot of that basic biology of like how old we think they are, how many eggs they lay, you know, do they migrate, whatever. Yeah. A lot of that stuff, like these fish haven't gotten the, the research. The, somebody did a review on it and found that non-game fish have one-tenth the number of research papers as game fish, even if they're commercially important, even like if they're uh, threatened, mm -hmm. there just hasn't been the research. And so we have opportunities you know like he only was looking at big mouth buffalo we don't know what we're going to find if we look at smallmouth buffalo or right. buffalo or river red horse or you know like so i remember when he when i saw him give this presentation years ago i remember the the pictures he put up on on the screen uh because it was it was some of the earlier days of bow fishing mm -hmm. uh being popular and so buffalo are often targeted uh, in, in, in the bow fishing process and people are just, they're, they're unlimited. So now we're getting maybe to the crux of with this one species, an example of the risk with rough fish designation Yep. and what you and I were talking about earlier, which is, okay, so there's growth of bow fishing, which you and I talked about. I own all the equipment. I still haven't done it and mm -hmm. I want, and I want to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, but sort of came there was a quick rise of the popularity of this in the last decade let's say yep maybe around that time frame and um it's a rough fish and so they're unlimited harvest and they're they're not eating them the people who are who are going after them usually right you know based on the uh photos that i uh, see i mean i don't know anyone who can eat an entire truckload of <laughs> of buffalo yeah um, uh -huh. which they do actually taste good i've uh because, you know, I'm a rod and gun conservationist. I'm a meat eater and a hunter. Um, and I'm also a scientist at heart. So I've actually collected fish to donate to Alec for aging. Yeah. But I don't want the fish to go to waste. So yeah. I fillet it. Yeah. How's he, how's the big mouth buffalo? They're a, are they a, pretty bony? They're pretty bony. It's a firm white meat. And then, man, there's a lot of meat on them. Yeah. So, like, you make a lot of sucker balls out of, out of one of those. And people keep telling me that I need to open a, like a state fair food truck, you know, or state fair stand. Yeah. Um, which I'm like, I kind of do cause they're delicious, you know, like <laughs> it, uh, at, at that same event where I saw his presentation, I did eat, uh, silver carp. They had, uh, they had brought it smoked silver carp. It was okay. It was I've, yeah. Bad. I've heard those, are maybe even take, you know, but the red horse and, and buffalo and, uh, those are all members of the sucker family. And in my experience, those are pretty white, firm meat, not dissimilar from a, a walleye or tilapia or something like just, right. you know, the, if you deal with the bones, either make them to ceviche or smoke them or, or make them into fish patties, then they're mm -hmm. super easy. Yeah. Um, if you, you know, want to debone them, you can make them into fish tacos. And they're real good to just yeah. fiddly to, to get all the Y bones out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the meat's perfectly good. Um, but yeah, when you see truckloads and piles, yeah, you know, um, 
and piles on top of old piles, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the fish aren't getting eaten. Um, and yeah, as you said, the, the rise in popularity, um, there were no changes to the regulations to go along with, like they legalized night bow fishing, but they didn't do any adjustments to, um, the limits. And so Buffalo stayed unlimited and, uh, Buffalo get really big. So they make a, a fun target apparently. Um, and people often call them buffalo carp, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which yeah. then is conflates, you know, and like confuses the issue that they're mm-hmm. like invasive and they're not carp and they're not related to carp. Um, and they're not even bottom feeders. They actually eat plankton mainly like up in the water column, which is why they're so hard to catch on hook right. and line. Um, but yeah, that has led to, and it's unfortunately seems to have created a, a small group of people who almost seem to have a stake in um, maintaining this paradigm. Mm. Um, You know, as a rod and gun conservationist, I think uh, it's important that we promote and protect the species we want to harvest Mm -hmm. so that our sport survives. You know, Uh, I love grouse hunting, but not because I'm trying to get rid of grouse. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if I succeeded in, in getting rid of grouse, I wouldn't be able to grouse hunt anymore. Right. Yeah, no, and th- and this is the piece that you know you and I were talking about earlier. Um, it 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 does sort of um, fall outside of the North American model of conservation with this wildlife resource, with mm-hmm. this fish resource, right? Is in that you could you could argue, and it's pretty apparent. I mean, you could call that wanton waste, and yeah. it's not you're not utilizing that animal. There's it's not regulated, um, and there's actually with some of the rough fish too. There's there's commercial fishing mm-hmm. and so you know which all other all most uh, or all other uh wildlife you cannot um commercially um sell yeah no that's a uh, bullet point number two in the uh, north american wildlife model is that markets for uh game animals are eliminated right um that's you know it can creates this conflict you know and the commercial fishing is interesting because it's like on one hand i really feel like it proves that these fish have value you know it's like you can go online and search and like Mm -hmm. find frozen buffalo fillets um you know for however much a pound really yeah and it's like interesting i think it was nine or eleven bucks a pound or something right i'm like well that proves these fish have value yeah right like that you know if i was a commercial fisherman and i found out people were were shooting you know 30 or 40 pound fish out of a lake that i had a license to harvest Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm And I would be pretty mad, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like, but at the same time, you know, we eliminate uh, markets for game because we also recognize that the recreational harvest and the expenditures drive so much of the economy, you know, and create this, you know, ethic of conservation. Um, Whereas allowing, like in Minnesota, the commercial harvest is also unlimited. Mm -hmm. In fact, actually, I emailed the DNR and I was like, you know, asking about the commercial data for greater Minnesota. Yeah. And I was told that the data hadn't been entered in five years. Hmm. Um, and I really don't know how, you know, you can be managing a fishery. Right. If you're not entering the data and reviewing it. Once again, like you not wanting to make grouse extinct. If you're managing a fishery that's profitable, mm-hmm. you should want to be managing it for sustainability mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that you can keep the fishery going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I find that very confusing. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, this is a, I mean, this is a really interesting topic and I think what we need to do 
is we need to go fishing for some red horse mm-hmm. up by your place here soon. Yeah. And uh, and then reconvene on this conversation. Um, session ended. The bill didn't pass, I presume. No, they uh, there was some language in a conference committee bill. Um, and so I guess if there was a special session, there's a, a chance. Um, the, you know, uh, but the, I really hope that, you know, long term, you know, and the DNR has, uh, is already has the legislative capability to manage fisheries. Mm-hmm. Um, the legislator, legislature already has given them, given that authority, right? The power right. to do these things. Um, and so I hope that going forward that the Minnesota DNR can come up with a regulatory structure that creates both like a safe space for, you know, our native fish mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, in doing so also helps uh, raise awareness for them. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So that like, uh, we can bring more stewards into the resource. Yeah. And then also like recognizing, yeah, that we have invasive common carp. We have people, there are people out there who bow fish for food. Um, they're, you know, uh, bow fishing is a sport that's not going away. And so we need to create a regulatory structure that is protective of rare fish and protective of the resource, but also recognizes that, you know, we, uh, there are different ways of harvest and we can have people who are stewards of the uh, resource with an, a rod or with a bow, you know, and it's self-evident, you know, uh, that if you like doing the a recreational activity, if you like getting in the outdoors and hunting or fishing, then you are giving value to this resource. Yeah. You know, and we should want it to, to continue forward. We're all stakeholders in this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. So, well, let's, uh, let's do that. Let's get out fishing here soon. And, uh, and then we'll reconvene on this and talk a little bit more. I think, uh, it's, it's a fun topic. It's a, it's, um, you know, can be a complicated topic. It's got a lot of a lot of fingers of of sub issues, but uh, I, I think all it's all the uh, different species, and yeah. all the history. Um, it, I mean, we really did just scratch the surface. We didn't even get into the right. conflicts, the weird you know things with the border regulations and right. Um, you know, the the fact that people are confused about you know uh what how many species we have or if there are different species because the regulations book simplifies it down so much right right that you know and i don't blame people for not knowing because like right. the reg books just make it really basic exactly exactly well and that's the thing i mean they're confusing enough as they are with the the designations that they have but um well, let's let's do that. Let's uh, let's do part two uh, here soon. And uh, thanks for your time. My pleasure. I'm always happy to talk about fish. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.